All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm trying this for the third time since Kevin's being a non-cooperative guest host. And it's not super surprising that he's being difficult because we were talking about personality types just before we started recording. And Kevin is an INTJ. He was saying he's an INTJ and therefore he doesn't want to podcast right now because it takes such energy to podcast. And I thought, let me look up some people who are INTJs. And so I have Kevin, Al Gore, Vladimir Lenin, uh, Charles Darwin, John, smart guy. John Maynard Keynes. Mm. Well, flamboyant, uh, but smart. Anne Rand. Uh, Ooh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Interesting. Oh, worst of all, perhaps, Martin Luther. <laughs> and your personal favorite on this list, I believe, Elon Musk. Praise science. <laughs> all hail science. And then I'm an ENTJ, so we're a natural pairing. Yeah, we are, aren't we? I am uh, I'm similar to Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher. Julius Caesar. Was that? Warren what, Buffett. Was that or was that Bill not? Gates. Steve Jobs. <laughs> a wonderful Jobs. picture of Franklin Roosevelt as well. <laughs> Your political can, ideal. Can neither confirm nor deny that uh, people like Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Is that Jimmy Carter? Uh, is it Jimmy Carter? No. I can't see. I'm looking right upside down. Yeah, that's Warren Buffett. Now I'm looking to the right of. That's Steve Jobs. <laughs> oh yikes! <laughs> um, George Clooney, Harrison Ford, Jamie Fox, Quentin Tarantino. So many great ENTJs on this list. Man, I am proud to be an ENTJ, Kevin. Are you? Yeah. That's a very ENTJ thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Greg Greg Maddox. Steve Young. You know, Steve Young, one time San Francisco 49ers quarterback, he was my favorite NFL player when I was a kid. Really? And I collected football cards. I knew almost nothing about the sport. In fact, at that age, I thought that a touchdown happened when an offensive player had the ball in his hands and then spiked it on the ground and made it touch down on the ground. I mean, it's logical. It is because it's I very remember, incorrect, but... My dad was not a sports fan, but I remember one time right. watching, a, I think it was the Super Bowl, I was young, probably four years old. Mm -hmm. And a player must have scored a touchdown and then thrown the ball on the ground, as mm -hmm. happens often when a player scores a touchdown. And my dad said, touchdown. And I was like, oh, so it must be a touchdown when they throw the ball on the ground. That's how you get a touchdown. Wasn't Steve Young also... Um, Mormon. That's not where I was going with that. Well, that is true. Was Steve Young, um, I think... There's a, a man who is the greatest quarterback of all time who was a fan of Steve Young's at one point. Joe Montana was a Steve Young fan? I don't remember that. But the, the <laughs> person, the individual I'm referring to is also a huge Joe Montana fan. Uh, Dan Marino? So who else? We could, can, you who, can avoid this all you Who want. else could be the greatest right. quarterback of all time? Right. Drew Brees, perhaps? Drew Brees is mm. a great candidate for that, actually. I would... A perpetual mystery. I, say, I guess we'll never know who the greatest quarterback of all time is. It's Tom Brady. Oh, Tom Brady oh, of the New England Patriots. Uh, all I can say is the greatest quarterback of all time would never deflate footballs for competitive advantage. That's that's all I'll say about that. Really? You think that's the case? Because, uh, I mean, it appears that that's exactly what happened. It is exactly what happened. And he is the greatest of all time. Mm. Well, okay. Shall we move on from this and talk instead about uh, a theological topic, Kevin? I know you're super excited about all time. Also, by the way, Adele, the great English singer, another ENTJ. 
just wonderful people on this list. I'm glad I do not share any personality traits with uh, Vladimir Lenin. <laughs> oh, wow. Although I guess to be fair, both of us are NTJs, so I do share three out of the four right. ax- our, axes. Ac- of our the- actual functioning of our thought processes is actually very similar. Harrison Ford is looking old, man. Well, he is. Yeah, that's true. You know, Sally and I were living in Oxford when he was recording. No, we weren't living there, actually. It was, it was I think it was two years after we were living in Oxford when he was recording the new Star Wars movie. Really? And I kid you not. A, this is when he dropped a steel door on his foot? Yes. You know what the door was from, right? No. The Millennium Falcon. Oh. <laughs> oh so man. too true to form as a piece of junk. Yeah, uh, literally right. a door fell off of it and broke his foot. And he had to spend some time in the hospital where Sally had her first ever OB appointment when we were pregnant oh. with our daughter. Yeah. So you have an inseparable link to Harrison Ford. It, uh, no doubt that is the best way to characterize More that than link. just yes. your personality types. Yes, exactly. Although the personality type is really kind of the fundamental linkage. I'm, I'm sure listeners are really excited to <laughs> listen to us talk about personality types. Uh, but what I do want to talk about is purgatory, Kevin. And I know you're super excited. One of your favorite topics. You love just reflecting on purgatory. Um, so the genesis of this topic is that in the Diocese of Colorado Springs, I participated in a debate recently where I articulated, and or at least tried to articulate and defend, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Mm-hmm. And in the course of my research, I dug up some interesting stuff. But in the course of that conversation, it became very apparent to me, as I suspected would be the case, that people don't understand this doctrine of purgatory at all. Mm-hmm. And when I say people, I'm not just talking about Protestants, but also, and perhaps even more glaringly, Catholics. People have these ideas about what purgatory is and is not, and they're pretty flat out wrong. So let me start out with a question for you, Kevin. I'm not going to pop quiz you and ask you what purgatory is. I appreciate that. But let's go back to like, you, you went to public school, right? Not Catholic school? I did. Okay, well, let's go back to like grade school kind of confirmation classes. At that point in your life, what was your impression of purgatory, if you had one at all? I do not think I remember that part of my life. Just, I think I've just, blacked just, it out. Just period. <laughs> High school, I think all I just it. blacked Cate- it out. Categorically, okay. Yeah, oh man. I don't think it, honestly, I, I don't think it was really an often discussed topic. Okay, that's even, fair. I mean, even as a cradle Catholic, it's not the kind of, it's not something that got a lot of attention. At least in my, you know, growing up and you know, the generation that we grew up in, I don't remember the doctrine of purgatory getting much attention. Uh, to the extent that it did, it was usually, um, you know, m- kind of kids of other faith traditions chastising you for thinking that you had to pray for people after they died or that everyone didn't just go straight to heaven. Right. Yeah. That. Well, that... That accords with my experience for sure. I mean, growing up as a Protestant, that's what I thought. You chastised people like me. I honestly don't think I. Let's see. I remember when I was a when I was a younger child, and by younger I mean like elementary, and middle school. I think I had one, one set of friends, one family, who were Catholic. Mm. And honestly, we didn't talk about theology. I mean, you you know how like ten and twelve year old boys are. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we it's played more, we played more army, interesting you things. Know? Yeah, exactly. So I never really engaged them in serious theological discussion. But there was always it was very clear that they believed slightly different things or maybe vastly different things than we did. I don't remember being really engaged on the topic of purgatory, but I do remember when I was in probably ninth grade, my family and I watched this Martin Luther movie mm-hmm. and Johann Tetzel 
was portrayed very poorly in that. I mean, probably accurately, but he was kind of the central figure highlighting all of the uh, excesses and errors of the Roman establishment. And he was going around selling these indulgences and saying, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory shall spring. In other words, if you donate to me so I can build my churches, I can guarantee you passage into eternal life for a loved one. They'll just leave purgatory right away. Yeah, I think this is a good point is it often does get tied to the idea of indulgences. Yes. Right? And I think for the purpose of time or for the sake of time, we won't go into indulgences tonight because that's a whole, it's not a whole different topic. It is related, like you just said, but it requires, I think, some more time to flesh that out. So for the purposes of tonight, let's focus a little bit more specifically on purgatory. And let's maybe start with saying what purgatory isn't. So we're going to try to be quick here. I think we can wrap this up in the next 20 minutes. But just to kind of set the scene, what, what I want to do in this discussion is explain and articulate the Catholic doctrine of purgatory and why reason, scripture, and the church's tradition all bear witness to the truth of that teaching. Sounds like a tall order. It is. And we got 20 minutes. So let's go. Let's go. All right. So the first thing, and this is how I opened the debate when I spoke in my diocese the other day. The first thing to do, I think, in this discussion is to apologize for ways that people in the church have misapplied and misunderstood this teaching. Because people, I just told the story of Johann Tetzel, people like that have created really bad liturgical abuses that led people to think that God's mercy is not all-encompassing, that God perhaps doesn't love us, or that the church really demands things like material sacrifice to build churches in order to gain passage from purgatory for you or a loved one. All of that stuff is wrong, um, and I think we need to apologize for ways that people have misunderstood and mistaught that. I mean, purgatory... Another thing to remember about purgatory at the outset, and for me to mention now, is that purgatory is not about the wrath of God that needs to be satisfied, but rather purgatory is really, Kevin, I think, about God's mercy. Purgatory exists, as we believe it does, uh, because God is a merciful God, not because he is simply a God of vengeance. Now, I won't, I won't say he's a vengeful God. I mean, scripture tells us that, that God is a jealous God, but the jealousy that God has is the jealousy for our love and devotion. That's what God wants from us. So that's why we are not allowed to worship other gods, to bow down before our false idols, is because God is jealous for our love, and it's, it's only because of his fierce and unrelenting love for us. And that's exactly why purgatory exists. But, but with those comments out of the way, let me, let me then talk about what purgatory is not. So in discussion with people, Catholics and Protestants, about purgatory, you'll encounter these ideas that, you know, someone grew up in Catholic school and, you know, the, the nuns who taught at the school or the sisters or the Jesuit priests taught that limbo was a place where unbaptized babies go before the final judgment. And that's essentially what purgatory is, right? That like people who sort of die in a state of uncertain grace go to purgatory. Or maybe you've heard that purgatory is a place where you get a second chance if you've denied God in this life or offended God in this life. Or maybe you've heard that it's a place where you have to really, really totally and finally earn your salvation if you couldn't do it on earth. Those are maybe three big ideas about purgatory, Kevin. All of those ideas, categorically wrong. Okay. So, Kevin, 
Now it's pop quiz time. Pop quiz. Do you know what the church has formally defined about purgatory? I'll give you a hint. It's not much. It's not much. Huh? It's, also, it's also on the notes in front of you. It's on the notes in front of me. <laughs> uh, so it exists. Yes. Boom. So okay. That's so number that's one. Step one, that purgatory exists. Right. So number two is then uh, that it's a time of cleansing. Yep. Um, and then the final, third and final, is that um, the prayers of the faithful in this life, especially through the sacrifice of the mass, are... Um, What's the right way to put this? They are for the benefit of those people uh, who are in purgatory for their ultimate kind of emancipation and, and entry into heaven. Well said. That's it. Those three things. And so, you know, you, we can speculate about, you know, things like attaching a, an earthly amount of time to time in purgatory. We can speculate about exactly what time in purgatory feels like. But at the end of the day, those are all speculations. The church has not defined any of that. So what the church has defined is those three things, Kevin. One, that purgatory does exist. Two, that it's a period of cleansing and that souls experience cleansing pains. And three, that the prayers of the faithful are efficacious. Okay, so let me go back to my original claim that purgatory is real and that its existence is, is uh, proven or corroborated by three things, human reason, holy scripture, and holy tradition. And let's start with the, whole, the, the human reason thing. And one thing I want to say on this is that there's this wonderful quote from someone who I think would be familiar to most people on here. He says, I believe in purgatory. Our souls demand purgatory, don't they? My favorite image on this matter comes from the dentist's chair. I hope that when the tooth of life is drawn and I am coming round, a voice will say, rinse your mouth out with this. This will be purgatory. That is from a Protestant a man named C.S. Lewis. Hmm. So C.S. Lewis believed in purgatory, Kevin. That's Isn't interesting. interesting. And what's, what's doubly interesting to me is that the, the idea of purgatory that he embraces here is completely in accordance with what the church has taught. Right. Now, it doesn't necessarily jive with what some people in the church have believed about purgatory, but it absolutely jives with what the church has formally defined about purgatory, right? That it is a place where uh, before we encounter God, we get sort of cleaned up, mm -hmm. right? We go through those those cleansing uh, cleansing pains that you talked about. And so, so Anglicanism does not have a doctrine of purgatory because C.S. Lewis was Anglican, right? So he correct, yes, he he absolutely was. So here's one of the frustrations that I had with Anglicanism when I was Anglican, and that I really still have with Anglicanism, having you know family and friends who are Anglican, is that Anglicanism doesn't really have much of anything mm -hmm. just to really tie it down. That's why the Anglican communion is fractured globally. That's why they can't agree on really fundamental issues about human identity and activity, moral teaching. Um, there is a, a set of articles called the 39 Articles, 39 Articles, um, that was written, uh, I want to say, by Cranmer, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, and they articulate some things that, the, that many Anglicans would hold. But, I mean, for example, one of those things that they articulate are that... Uh, you know, the, um, the Romish doctrine of purgatory, uh, I think is repugnant to the words of Holy scripture, I believe is oh, the wow. language. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so if you're a, if you're a good 39 article abiding Anglican, no, you're not supposed to believe in purgatory, but there's also no reason canonically speaking mm -hmm. why you couldn't, if that makes sense. So if you were someone like CS Lewis and you just spent a little too much time with your friend, J.R. Tolkien, exactly. you might, um, find yourself slipping into this. Correct. Purgatorial. And yet, you could still be an Anglican in good standing. In fact, when I became Catholic, 
a uh, an Anglican clergyman I know suggested that I could still be Anglican and hold to transubstantiation, which to me was a completely incoherent. Doesn't idea. understand what transubstantiation requires. <laughs> right, exactly, precisely, and and the fact that I would be doing that literally in the pew alongside people who held a Zwinglian idea, mm-hmm. right? It it sort of defeats the the unity that is called for in the sacrament of the Eucharist. I digress, but thank you for the question about Anglicanism, Kevin. We can, maybe we can do a whole separate episode on Anglicanism. Um, okay, so C.S. Lewis believed in purgatory, and, and what he says is it's because our souls demand it, and that's exactly the, the rational reason for purgatory. So mm-hmm. the, uh, the logical syllogism that I think is most helpful for understanding the existence of purgatory goes like this, two premises and a conclusion. The first premise is that there will not be anything sinful or even inclined to sin in heaven. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Nothing impure will enter heaven. So I think we can all agree that once we're in heaven, wholly united with God, we won't even want to sin anymore. Won't be a thought in our minds. We will be so satisfied with what Thomas Aquinas calls gladness, unalloyed, and perfect bliss that we will not be inclined to sin, nor will we bear any of the effects of sin. Okay, so that's the first premise. The second premise is that right now, many of us bear the consequences of sin and are inclined to sin at the end of our lives. Now, some of you listening might be saints already, and if so, congratulations, I applaud you. I am not, so I can really only speak for myself on this. I still sin, and I still bear the consequences of sin. I still carry with me concupiscence. I still want to sin. I'm still attached to the sins that I do, and I'm still in need of God's forgiveness. So that's premise two. Any any quibbles with me on premises one and two, Kevin? No quibbles. Okay. So then the third conclusion then is that there has to be a process of conversion or sanctification or what we might call purgation in which the saved, like you and me, who are saved indeed, not by our own merit, but on the merits of Jesus Christ, in which the saved are cleansed from both the consequences of sin and their attachment to it. So this is very important. Purgatory is not about obtaining forgiveness for your sins. Purgatory is about going through a purgation that rids you of the consequences of your sin and your attachment to that sin. The reason why it's not about forgiving your sin is because Jesus Christ already did that. I mean, Kevin, you go to confession, just like I do. A lot of times my confessor, right after I make my confession, a lot of times my confessor will say, okay, first of all, the good Lord has already forgiven you. Have you ever had a confessor say that to you? I have not. Okay, it's happened to me several times from Hmm. probably three to five different priests. The idea is Jesus Christ already did everything that needs to be done for you to be forgiven. Jesus Christ has already won forgiveness for you, has won satisfaction. So purgatory is not about getting forgiven. Purgatory is about having your attachment to sin and the consequences of that sin wiped away. So that is the, um, that's the logical syllogism. Does that all make sense? It sounds like a valid syllogism to me. Good. Excellent. That's what I'm going for. Now, Kevin, are you familiar with this term, the double consequence of sin? Uh, I think I've heard it before, but why don't you take me through it again? Yeah, sure. So the double consequence idea is also necessary to understand what purgatory is, because a lot of times Protestants look at purgatory and say, I can't believe that because ultimately what you're telling me is that Jesus didn't do enough, right? I know from scripture that Jesus Christ is, we just talked about this on the Jesus of Nazareth podcast last week, Kevin. You know, uh, Jesus Christ is the expiation, right? Mm -hmm. He gets rid of all our sins entirely. He is the perfect satisfaction for them. So the Protestant says, I can't believe in purgatory because Jesus Christ has already done all that. But the problem is we're talking about two different things. 
The Catholic is certainly not denying that Jesus has already done all that, that Jesus is, as Scripture tells us, the perfect expiation for our sins. Rather, the Catholic is saying, good, just like the just like the doctor or the rehab director can cure an alcoholic of his alcoholism, the liver damage still remains. Just as the sin that I do is forgiven me by Jesus, there still remains the consequences of that sin. So there's the there's the first consequence of sin. This is where the double consequence comes in. There's the first consequence that sin deprives us of communion with God. That's why we need a saving sacrifice, and he has done that for us already perfectly. But the second consequence is that that sin entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures, right? To something else, right? It could be a sin of lust. It could be a sin of gluttony. It could be any lack of charity towards other people. Um, any sin that we do uh, creates a sort of a, a spot, right? A spot on our souls. Uh, it blemishes us. And yes, Jesus Christ wins for us um, forgiveness for everything we do, but the consequences of, of what we do remain. And so metaphysically speaking, purgatory is is the, and I'm just going to say place for now because it's a it's um, easy language to understand. Purgatory is a place where that purgation happens. And I'll come back to this idea of place in just a second. So Purgatory is this place where the conversion or sanctification happens, where the soul is fitted for heaven so that it can be completely pure and detached from sin and wiped from every temporal consequence of sin before being wholly united with God. And the fact is that that's what needs to happen to be wholly united with God because we know that God is all holy. And we've talked before about the Catholic doctrine of divinization or theosis, where we, as people made in the image of God as people destined for God are actually wholly united with God. In order to be united with God, we need to take on the properties of God. In order to take on the properties of God, we can't have any of these temporal consequences because those two are not compatible. Does that all make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's what it comes down to. It seems is it's, this is all about a change in disposition. And while, as, as you said, as while the actual act has been forgiven, we are still inclined towards certain acts and really this is purgatory is the the training ground where we we now have already been cleansed of the actual acts um, through Christ's sacrifice but now this is we with without this training we are still inclined towards it our disposition is still not right and it raises the question of how can you then be right fully in communion how can you partake in the beatific vision if your disposition is still ordered towards something which is disordered precisely yes very well said and this actually reminds me of another point kevin i'm glad you mentioned that because um one other thing to mention is that not everyone needs purgatory mm-hmm. right if you die in god's perfect friendship which doesn't, which doesn't mean that if you die and God has forgiven you, because we all die. If, we, if, we, if we've expressed saving faith in Christ and we have our wills oriented towards him, God has forgiven us. So we all die in God's friendship in that way. But what I mean is if you die totally detached from everything else, mm-hmm. uh, totally united to God, then, then you know, you've, you've basically already experienced your purgatory here on earth. Mm-hmm. One example of this might be someone who is a martyr for Christ, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's a little more that can prove your total devotion to God than taking the sword to your neck for him. Right. Right. Uh, and so I, I, you know, the church doesn't, um, doesn't make definitive, you know, proclamations about whether or not someone experiences purgatory before being in heaven, but the church does canonize people. And, and normally that's on the basis of how they looked in this life and how they, uh, how holy they 
were when they died. Uh, and martyrdom is a great example of that. And a martyr, you know, by going through the suffering of martyrdom in a, in a way is experiencing the same purgation that anybody else who dies with those temporal consequences can experience. One other thing that I think is worth mentioning, I, I said I'd come back to this language of place. So a lot of people think of heaven as a place and they think of hell as a place and they think of purgatory as a place. That language doesn't really do justice to what we're talking about here. Yes, we will have uh, physical glorified bodies in some mysterious sense, but uh, these are sort of metaphysical locations rather than merely physical locations. Um, I think it's more helpful to think of purgatory as an existential state, uh, as a state uh, or a process rather than a place. Because when we talk about place, I think we just it comes with a lot of baggage and, and things like, like, um, like limbo, for example. Or when we talk about heaven as a place, even we just we sort of become too bounded by our three dimensional, um, uh, our three dimensional apprehensions of space, and we think of like angels floating on clouds and things like that. So language of place is not always helpful, and for purgatory specifically, I think it's unhelpful because it brings up associations of purgatory or what I might call sort of a hell light. Um, but it's not that at all. It's a, it's a process. It's a state. It's a, it's a state in which the person, the soul, is purified as the encounter with God happens. And I think it's really helpful for me to think about that process happening, that, that process itself being the encounter with God. And I get that idea from, of course, Kevin, one of our favorite Catholic thinkers, my favorite probably right after the great uh, angelic doctor, Thomas Aquinas, and that's Pope Benedict XVI. So he has this great quote on purgatory. Where he says, first of all, let's start off with what purgatory is not. He says, purgatory is not some kind of supra-worldly concentration camp. Rather, it is the inwardly necessary process. That's the, the syllogism we laid out. The inwardly necessary process, just like C.S. Lewis said, of transformation in which a person becomes capable of Christ. That's, again, why I say it's about God's mercy, right? It's, it's how God makes us capable of receiving himself, gladness unalloyed and perfect bliss. And then Benedict continues, Simply to look at people with any degree of realism at all is to grasp the necessity of such a process. C.S. Lewis. It does not replace grace by works, but allows the former to achieve its full victory precisely as grace. So it is, it is sort of the vessel through which grace is able to be fully effected. That's a, that's, sorry, that's my paraphrase. And then continuing to Benedict, what actually saves is the full ascent of faith. So this is going back to the idea of it's not, uh, it's not uh, our works that save us. It is faith. But in most of us, Ratzinger continues, that basic option is buried under a great deal of wood, hay, and straw. Man is the recipient of the divine mercy, yet this does not exonerate him from the need to be transformed. Encounter with the Lord is this transformation. It is the fire that burns away our dross and reforms us to be vessels of eternal joy. Isn't that beautiful, Kevin? It's incredible. When I So I actually read this, and I said it was by Benedict. It was by... Ratzinger before mm -hmm. he became Benedict is from his book Eschatology, Death, and Eternal Life. I read this passage on purgatory when I was Protestant mm -hmm. and when I was struggling with the idea of purgatory because this was actually, I didn't mention this, this was actually one of the main stumbling blocks for me because I sort of cognitively, I mean, it does involve kind of a paradigm shift about the way we think about sin and double consequence and uh, temporal punishment and all of these things um, and I really struggled with purgatory but it was this quote that kind of unlocked it for me in a sort of understanding why it was logically necessary and how it was not a place of punishment. It was not hell light. It was not limbo, but rather it, it was the encounter with God. Yeah. And I think, you know, that first sentence of uh, this passage you just read really captures, I think from the outs outside of the Catholic church, what the view often is of purgatory that is some kind of 
um, as Benedict says, super worldly contra- concentration camp. It's like this place where you kind of go and work in the salt mines exactly, for yeah. a while until, okay, you've, you've paid off your time for being a bad person. And now you get to go and, and, and be with everyone else in heaven, all the good people. Right. And Benedict does a, a wonderful job as always of explaining why that's really not the case and why there's so much more behind this. Exactly. Highlighting the, the mercy aspect of it, that it's purgatory that allows grace to achieve its full victory. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I think like going back to this logical syllogism idea, if, if purgatory weren't necessary, Kevin, I think what would happen is this. The process of sanctification would be as simple as accept Jesus. And then your life will be sinful or sorry, sinless from that point on. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's it. So, but, but that's not what happens. Clearly we accept Jesus. Jesus forgives us and saves us and delivers us from eternal uh, eternal, uh, from our eternal fate in hell, he delivers us from that, but we still sin. We're still mm-hmm. attached to sin. And so because of that, we need to be, we need to cleanse and purify. And that's why it's an example of God's mercy. So let's now talk real quick, Kevin, about, um, Holy scripture and Holy tradition. And you'll talk to Protestants. I have, and they'll say purgatory is not in the Bible. Well, there's a couple things to say to that. First of all, the, the quote that I just read from Ratzinger is, um, channeling and paraphrasing, 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, um, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. So um, what Ratzinger is saying here is that what Paul is talking about, the day disclosing it, the fire testing the work, etc., uh, and then in verse 15, the work being burned up, that is what Ratzinger is talking about. The stuff that we do, right, will be tested and will burn up with, or will burn with fire and it'll either endure because it's, it's gold and metal and precious stones or it'll be hay and wood and straw and it'll be burned up. Now, that, that image itself is a, it's, it's a, it's an image of purification, right? Mm-hmm. We have the stuff, hay, wood and straw mixed in with gold and metal and precious stones. The fire cleanses us because that's what fire does it cleanses us and it burns away the dross the unnecessary and it retains the essential it retains the good it retains the holy so that's the first thing i would say to someone who says purgatory is not in scripture there are a couple other passages where i think is important uh, to point out to a protestant first peter 1 7 where peter talks about our faith being tested through fire uh matthew 12 32 jesus talks about um how you know someone will be forgiven neither in this age nor in the age to come and the church fathers interpreted that to mean and in fact augustine you have the city of god in front of you kevin augustine interpreted that passage to understand or to mean that jesus is implying that there are some sins that could be forgiven in the age to come mm-hmm. uh and and the way the church has interpreted this is that those you know, sins in that sense being the the temporal consequences that can be purified in the age to come uh that being the the process of purgatory um luke chapter 12 is another one where uh, Jesus has a story of the good and faithful stewards. Um, but this is not just, a, it's not a binary option. It's not there is a good steward who goes to heaven and a bad steward who goes to hell. There are actually two other stewards, Kevin, um, who receive beatings, but still but still get off okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, I looked actually in my Protestant study Bible because I still have it. It's the ESV Crossway Study Bible. Really good study notes. Uh, of course, very Protestant. And I looked at the study notes for Luke chapter 12 and the... This this Bible is is never short for notes, but in this uh, in this case, all it talked about was the good steward 
and the very bad steward who goes to hell, it just totally omitted any commentary on the middle two stewards, <laughs> one who receives a severe beating and one who receives a light beating. But that again has interpreted, has been interpreted by, uh, by the church as talking about, you know, someone who enters immediately into heaven with God. That would be you know, someone who's immediately a saint, uh, someone who is in hell and two people who, um, you know, have to go through this process of purgation in order to be fully united with God. Um, so those are some passages in scripture. There's also second Maccabees. I think this is, uh, second Maccabees and potentially first Timothy, two places where people pray for the dead. Uh, the first Timothy issue, it's probably not the best like fodder for a debate because it's not totally clear that Onesiphorus is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, mo- I mean, maybe not most, most Protestant people will say he's not dead. Most Catholic people will say he is dead. Uh, I will say that some Protestant Biblical scholars have acknowledged that Onesiphorus is probably dead here when Paul is praying for him. So that's interesting. Why would Paul pray for him if our prayers are of no effect? Right. Um, and then Second Maccabees, uh, Scripture clearly tells us that uh, you know praying for the dead is an is an excellent and noble thing to do. Now, a Protestant will say, "Well, Second Maccabees isn't Scripture." Right. Well, you, you kind of get around that problem by <laughs> just removing it, right? Yeah, exactly. But it isn't. I think one of the most interesting things about the Second Maccabees passage is that that is occurring of course in the old testament yeah which is before the salvation is one it's before the sacrifice so even in this time you know prior to christ's descent into hell and breaking the gates of hell um, even prior to that there was a notion in the hebrew tradition right it appears of the the worthiness of praying for the dead yeah that's a really good point too and i think um you know, there are, that reminds me of my second point, which is when you're talking with a Protestant about this or when you're just thinking about this, you know, someone might say this is not in the Bible. And by that, what they're really meaning is this is unbiblical. But there are two ways that something can be unbiblical. The first is if it contradicts the plain words of Scripture, right? Mm-hmm. So something something like that would be um, Jesus was not really God, right? That That is unbiblical because it contradicts the plain words of Scripture. There are other things that you could call unbiblical but are totally different in that they are totally in agreement with scripture, but the scripture doesn't come out and explicitly say, mm-hmm. right? And so the doctrine of the Trinity, one could, they'd be wrong, but one could say that's unbiblical because the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in scripture. Right. But that's a totally different thing than saying it contradicts scripture, right? And so purgatory, I think, is, you know, at the, you know, to give to give the Protestant side of the argument the very best benefit. Uh, one could say that it's not, you know, the word purgatory certainly doesn't occur in scripture. Um, and, you know, this this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's not totally clear that Paul is talking about what we call purgatory. Uh, same thing with 1 Timothy chapter 1 and Luke chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 12. Um, but it doesn't make the doctrine of purgatory per se unbiblical because n- none of it contradicts what is in scripture. Uh, and most of the Protestant arguments for how it does are just simply wrong. I mean, um, you know, there's there's often uh, often cited the example of St. Paul when he says, uh, I'd rather be away from the body and present with the Lord. But that alone doesn't imply that to be away from the body is present with the Lord. But even, even if it does, what we're saying is purgatory is to be present with the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. It's just not to be fully united with him, right? So purgatory is the state of being present with the Lord. And just encountering him and having all that dross and, and stuff burned away. So that's totally constant with scripture. Another famous famous one is, um, and this came up in my debate as well, uh, when Jesus is on the cross and the thief repents on the cross. Uh, and Jesus says, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
But an important thing that gets left gets left out of that or it gets misunderstood is that there's no punctuation in the mm-hmm. Aramaic. And uh, so there's no there's no good reason to to assume that Jesus is saying, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise, because he could just as easily be saying, I say to you today, mm. you will be with me in paradise. But I mean, even like even without hanging your hat on the semantics of that, there's no reason why why it you know wouldn't be true that today that person will be with Jesus in paradise. Right. Because we don't attach earthly time to purgatory. Yeah, exactly. Right? The the notion of what today is. Exactly. Um, you know, it could be an entire era is today. Precisely. It, it goes back to the theme that you've hit on several times, which is we attach earthly material words because it allows us to have a frame of reference to understand concepts that would otherwise be impossible for our human minds to grasp. But that certainly doesn't, we should not take those so literally right. to believe, you know, purgatory is a place or today is, it, you know, this particular rotation of the earth about its axis. So. Exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah. Some, sometime in the next 24 hours, you'll be with me in paradise. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So, um, that's, those are some words on scripture and just real quick before we close out, um, Kevin, the witness of holy tradition is very strong on this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the early church is unanimous on this, um, sort of after death state, if we can call it that, uh, purgatory. I mean, I think the, uh, I don't think, I know the the word purgatory and the doctrine as it has come to be enumerated in those three things that we talked about earlier. Um, that, of course, like many of the church's deepest doctrines, like the Trinity, that develops over time. But there is complete unanimity in the early church on, um, you know, praying for the dead, for example, right? On on there being some sort of intermediate state, et cetera. Um, and so just to give you a few names here, Tertullian, Origen, St. Cyprian, St. Clement, St. Cyril, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. Basil, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, St. Gregory the Great, St. John Chrysostom, uh, later uh, St. Robert Bellarmine, one of my heroes, uh, the Councils of Lyons, one and two, the Council of Florence, the Council of Trent. Um, all of these contained explicit or at the very least implicit references to purgatory and just i think is testimony to the the testimony testimony of the testimony of the early church um and so this is something that is borne out by holy tradition in addition to holy scripture and it is uh demanded by human reason as c.s lewis recognized i have a lot more stuff on common protestant counter arguments to purgatory we don't have time to go into them go into them today but maybe if you're listening to this and you want to hear me do more discussion on responding to Protestant counter arguments, I'd be happy to do that. Just send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. Kevin, anything else to add here? I've got one, one final plug before we sign off. Lay it on me. We said we were not going to talk about indulgences today. Well, yeah. you said we weren't, but I, did. I never committed to that. Do you so want, I'm going to talk about. Do you want to go there? I'm going to talk about one indulgence. Okay, sounds good. So this is completely in line with our topic today. Okay, and this is um, I bring this up because it's something that I did not know about probably until about a year ago, and it is a plenary indulgence called the apostolic pardon, and it is very I think after hearing this, it's so important for us as Catholics to understand this, so that if one of our um, brother or sister Catholics is nearing the end of his or her life, one of our um, beloved family members is nearing the end of his or her life. The importance of getting a priest to their bedside or wherever they are, um, it's paramount because we have talked about um, purgatory and what the apostolic pardon is, um, is 
a person who is already in a state of grace, so someone who has, uh, you know, no mortal sin on their soul, someone who uh, probably has confessed very recently as a part of their uh, kind of last rites as they are ending their time on earth, this apostolic pardon is an indulgence that remits the temporal punishment due to sin. So it is actually a way that you can more or less skip purgatory <laughs> and actually find your way straight into heaven. And the priest, the words, there's a couple different forms of this, but I think the one that is most common now is is this one. Through the holy mysteries of our redemption, may God Almighty release you from all punishments in this life and the life to come. May he open to you the gates of paradise and welcome you to everlasting joy. And then after that, as the tradition um, is, is then either right before or right after the apostolic pardon, the priest will give you the viaticum, which is the last time that you will receive Holy Communion um, in this life. It literally translates to food for your journey. And it's, you know, I think it's be- a beautiful image that as you are now going to Christ um, and with the, the hope of entering to heaven, he is feeding you with his own body as food for your journey along the way. And I just want to stress you know, how important this is and, and what a beautiful opportunity it is for you to send, um, and for us to send our loved ones off armed with everything they need, uh, potentially to not have to worry about anything we just talked about today. That's great. Thanks for that. I, uh, yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't know all of that about the, and I, I didn't know the form. So when you read that, I had a little shiver down my spine cause it's so beautiful. <laughs> I mean, again, yeah. this goes back to what I was saying earlier. This is about the mercy of God. Mm-hmm. This is not about God who hates us or you know has a love-hate relationship with us or demands satisfaction that we somehow earn our salvation. Uh, that's not what purgatory is at all. Purgatory, again, the process, the state in which we encounter God. Our God wants to encounter us. That's why he's a jealous God. That's why he... That's why he demands our love because he loves us and he wants to be totally united to us. If we bear the consequences of sin on our souls, we need to be purified as we encounter God. The beautiful thing is though, the mercy of God, literally limitless. And so like you were just saying, Kevin, someone who's on their deathbed can get a total remission of temporal sin and get food for their journey as they receive last rites because our God wants so badly to be united with us, period. And that's beautiful. We'll end it there. We'll end it there. All right, so let me know if you wanna hear more counter arguments to Protestant arguments against purgatory or Catholic responses to those counter arguments. Uh, Zach, Z-A-C, at credocatholic.com. If you wanna ask Kevin some questions about indulgences, we can do another episode on that. So email, email <laughs> Kevin, Kevin at creedlecatholic.com. Uh, we'll be back next week with some more material. Kevin's going to be leaving for seven weeks, Ugh. but he's promised me he's taking the microphone on the road with him so we can record via his hotel room in my house and not in my house and my house. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be at my house. He'll be in his hotel room. We'll do some more content. We are coming back with some more Jesus of Nazareth from Benedict the 16th and look forward to bringing that to you soon. All right, until next time, God bless. Peace.